This week on the show, we are covering OpenZFS Storage Best Practices Part 3, Databases and VMs from Clara Systems. 2023 in review, continuous integration and workflow management improvements uh, from the FreeBSD Foundation. Running OpenBSD on OmniOS using Beehive, FreeBSD jail data, data sets from ZFS, and how you can find the ZFS snapshots uh, directory is what Dan Langell asks. OpenBSD workstation hardening by Celine. KDE Plasma now is linked to packages on OpenBSD Current. Midnight BSD has a new release out, and we cover a couple of things more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 543 or 543 to be precise, OpenBSD workstation hardening, recorded on the 12th of January, 2024. Still needs a bit of adjustment to not say 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. Uh, we hope this episode finds you well and in good spirits. Uh, we have uh, had some <laughs> have nice you, recording have, episodes. Have, have you have you have you seen the meme? Sorry, Benedict. Have you seen the meme, the which is like somebody lying face down in a car park with like a trolley on fire? It's like this is how no. your email finds me. <laughs> <laughs> if 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 you've heard this part of of this podcast and you are in a data center or approaching a seldom used computer that has um to use a, a technical scottish term shit the bed um please write in and tell us that the, the podcast found you in a terrible way it's yeah. our fault but i'm sorry do you say shit the bed or shit itself shit the bed okay i mean you could also say shit itself i mean you say somebody shit themselves yeah as an ex like as a um description of their uh, reaction to something if somebody jumps when you speak to them or oh yeah even for, slightly you say yeah, you shit yourself laugh. uh but you know if something goes very badly or maybe very well you would definitely mm. say shit the bed yeah that i know uh, because at work i say a lot of oh the, the script had shit itself or the machine has shit itself it's not reacting anymore but these um, these these ex these exclamations they're much better when you direct them at yourself when you, when, when you <laughs> have made a mistake and say, oh, I really shit the bed on that one, didn't I? And everyone, yeah, yeah, everyone agrees the, you're definitely in trouble. The self-criticism of sorts. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, this is your educational part of BSD Now. Let's return to a more serious topic. The headlines start with OpenZFS storage best practices. Yes, there is a part three, as Jason and I have alluded to in the past when we read part one and part two. Or did you read part one? I'm not I, sure. What I mean, one of the parts, it's, it's not like it's well, yeah. unfamiliar. Uh, Clara Systems articles, uh, and this is a continuation from a part two and uh, of course from part three. Maybe there's a part four even, we will see, but let's first go into part three, databases and virtual machines. ZFS is an extremely powerful storage technology they start with, but to get the absolute best out of it, especially under the most challenging workloads, there are many additional factors to consider when designing and configuring your storage pool. In this week's article, we tackle these tricky workloads. Okay, then it begins with OpenZFS use cases, databases, 
Databases like Postgres, MySQL, or Redis are a much more challenging storage workload than generic file service. This workload requires tremendous parallelism, small block random access within massive files and constant explicit f-sync calls. Yeah, topology for database workloads throughout is no longer the primary performance consideration. Latency is specifically the latency attached to very small page sizes and random I.O. operations. This means two things, solid state and mirrors. SSD drives provide a far lower latency than conventional drives possibly can, and mirrors provide far better random access performance than RAID Z can, particularly when we're talking about small random access ops, which can't be effectively spread across tons of disks in a wide stripe VDEF. Performance generally scales with VDEF count, not with total drive count. This is true for almost all workloads, but it's especially true for database workloads. So, if you've got 10 drives, five two-wide mirror VDEFs provide roughly five times the potential IOPS of a single 10-wide RAID set 2. Getting that? Okay. On top of that, the mirror VDEFs can each fulfill two read requests simultaneously, where the RAID set VDEF would have to fulfill first one and then the other. For database workloads, Stripe RAID, including RAID Z, generally performs worse than a single disk. We're not kidding about the importance of mirrors for this workload. So yeah, adjust your uh, configuration of the pool accordingly. Tunables, the record, the record size property would be matched to the page size of your database engine. For MySQL or MariaDB defaults, that's 16 kilobytes. For Postgres defaults, it's 8 kilobytes. It's very much worth doing your research here and finding the actual page size used by your application so you can get this setting tuned properly. If you set up a Postgres database on an untuned OpenZFS dataset, the record size will be 128 kilobytes, and every read you issue will pull in a whopping 16 times more data than it needs. Worse, every write you issue will actually be read, modify, write. You'll have to read in 128K, modify 8 kilobits of it, then write the entire 128 kilobits out again. Don't do that. Most database workloads are highly compressible and will both see space and performance benefits from setting compress equals LZ4. Be careful with compress equals Z standard. It achieves higher compression ratios, but they can frequently come at an expense of performance, whereas LZ4 is generally a massive win across the board. Ah, see, that's not just getting the latest and greatest compression algorithm, but also leveraging some of the older ones that are still around. A Clara ZFS performance audit can help you find the best possible configuration for your database to ensure you get maximum performance. Extended attributes equals SA is not worth for it uh, for datasets used to store database files because there are only a few relatively massive files. But you may want to set A time equals off to make sure you aren't unnecessarily blipping the access time metadata on the database every time you read or write a row. That's already quite good to know. Then they talk a bit more about support VDEFs. Most database workloads are extraordinarily sync heavy, which in turn means that a nice fast log VDEF can offer major performance benefits. Be careful to choose an SSD that offers high sustained write performance, high write endurance, and low and predictable latency. The best choice for log DDEFs by far is Intel Optane technology. Optane offers incredibly low latency and utterly UFO class endurance. I'm not kidding, that's UFO class endurance. Okay. Unfortunately, it's getting difficult to find Optane, so you may be stuck with conventional NAND based SSDs. If you're stuck with those, uh, you want a fairly large size to improve the right endurance and ideally hardware quality of service and onboard non volatile cache. This means enterprise targeted drives like Kingston's fairly or inexpensive DC500M line. 
cache VDEVs are really useful in database environments as it will just occupy more RAM that could be used for primary cache. The database management engine also has its own cache, which will need to be tuned to not interfere with the ARC and to ensure RAM is not wasted double caching the same data. Every use case is different, but we do not generally recommend implementing a special VDEV on a system primarily intended for database hosting. There's not enough file-level metadata to read or write to make the added point of failure worthwhile. Okay, that's solid advice already. And let's move on to virtual machine hosting. In many ways, VM hosting strongly resembles database hosting. You've got random access with much larger files, with potentially a lot of synchronous write requests, and this challenging workload benefits strongly from careful, knowledgeable tuning. Unlike database hosting, a single VDEV can provide several effectively different workloads, which makes tuning for it a bit less of a walk through the docs and a bit more of an applied art. VMs may or may not issue a lot of F-sync calls for the most part. The outside of the VM won't F-sync any more frequently than the inside of it does. So a VM hosting databases will issue endless F-syncs, while one doing generally uh, office file serving over SMB will probably issue almost none. One enormous caveat here, if you're doing VM hosting with separate storage and compute silos, you need to keep your network transport in mind. If you use synchronous NFS as a network transport, your VM will issue 100% synchronous writes, even if its internal workload is completely asynchronous. They have a section that's a bit longer about topology, where they talk about uh, red Z configurations, different BDEF sizes. Then there's a section on tunables, like cluster size, setting those to 64K. For VMs running on the Linux kernel virtual machine, KVM, the QCAL file format is very common storage backend. By default, QCAL file uses cluster size 64K. This means that all access to the VM's virtual drives is done in 64 kilobyte pieces, which in turn means that record size 64K is the optimal setting for database uh, or for data sets hosting those QCAL files. With that said, you may not want to leave that cluster size set to default. If possible, you want the same operation page size all the way up to a stack from application level requests inside the VM to storage calls made by the host to the storage backend all the way up to OpenZFS itself. And so they also talk about uh, deactivating access time and setting XATTRSA to make a positive difference in this case. Support VDEVs. Uh, they distinguish between log, cache, and uh, special VDEV. And conclude with, you should definitely read the full article if you're interested in the details. ZFS provides an extremely reliable and performant storage backend for any workload, but with the right configuration and tuning, it can perform even better. Consider a ZFS subscription from Clara to access, access the Clara's team expertise and advice to get the most out of OpenZFS for your workload. In this series, we have examined universal back practices, best practices, recommendations about backups and data safety, and optimizing ZFS for all kinds of workloads from file serving to databases. If you have any questions, please reach out to us. We'll be glad to help. Right at the end of the year, on the 29th of December, uh, the FreeBSD Foundation published a 2023 year in review, continuous integration and workflow improvement. And there's no name on this. No. And they write, as part of our continued support of the FreeBSD project, we have a full-time staff member dedicated to improving the project's continuous integration system and test infrastructure. In 2023, we added more testing jobs for ARM64 architectures, such as testing with kernel address sanitizer and building tests for non-standard compilers such as GCC 12 and 13. We've also made great progress running the workflow 
working group designing implementing systems to support the pull request based workflow. Pre-commit CI is on the horizon as well. We worked with the Sonar intern to update the Tinderbox view, tinderbox.freebusy.org, of the CI result dashboard. Now provides more details of the test results and possible breaking points. The foundation also supports full-time staff members' efforts to work with engineers from Microsoft to help them implement support for new features in Azure and provide more FreeBSD features in Azure. This includes ARM64 VM support, Gen2 VM support, and ZFS images. All these changes are included in 14.0 release and published to the Azure Marketplace. As always, the foundation's support of CI and Microsoft Cloud environments is only possible because of your investment in FreeBSD. If you have not done so yet, please consider supporting FreeBSD before the year end. So we're a little bit a little bit late for that, but um, at the start of the year, you can also support FreeBSD by donating to the FreeBSD Foundation. And there's a nice donate now button on the link if you click through to freebsdfoundation.org. Yep. And they also send a couple of newsletters uh, around December or Christmas time uh, where they also highlighted some of the other work they were doing. And so the foundation is uh, supporting the project in various ways, technically and marketing and other ways. So uh, that's definitely worth considering donating and keeping these efforts up. Okay, then next up is in the news roundup, running OpenBSD on OmniOS using Beehive. Tom Fatigue, or however you pronounce that correctly, uh, we just covered the episodes or the uh, <laughs> blog posts there and don't care too much about pronunciation, even though we have been corrected in the past about how to properly pronounce that. It starts with the Beehive hypervisor have been ported to Illumos and provides an alternative to KVM. SmartOS created an OpenBSD image, but it's quite old. I don't know yet how to upgrade or make more up-to-date images, but I could manage to run OpenBSD 7.4 on OmniOS. The preparation. Have a look at ZADM doc-b Beehive to see all the available options for Beehive virtual machines. The OpenBSD 7.4 installation ISO does not support UEFI. This makes it impossible to use with Beehive to run the installer as far as uh, here the author can tell. This will soon be all tales uh, where this is a separate link to uh, the OpenBSD uh, info page. But until then, an option to use the disk image that you normally transfer to a USB device to boot on. So currently they're using a dedicated data set to store the ISOs. So they create uh, one uh, ZFS data set, dash O mount point equals slash zone, uh, slash ISO, and then there is tank ISO. Okay. Then they CD into that and uh, download that using wget from OpenBSD's CDN. Turn the image file into a device that can be attached to a VM, uh, that's LOFI ADM, dash R, dash A, and then the path to the IMG that was just downloaded, and then def LOFI slash one. That's probably the first uh, of that attachment. Create an OpenBSD virtual machine using ZADM. That's a longer listing where you basically configure what this machine should have as attributes, a name, uh, boot disk, of course, what kind of uh, ISO it should boot from, the one we just downloaded, the network, uh, interface, how much memory you should have, and some other options to just have a basic virtual machine. There are a couple old posts on it that points out uh, that using AMD host bridge or alternative disk IF net IF values uh, from what they could test the best parameter to modify from default is the type one, 
this solved all their weird BM behavior. So what kind of type have they set here? Ah, uh, here type is OpenBSD. Okay, installation. Start the zone while attaching to the console. Tell the OpenBSD bootloader to use COM0. And then you see some familiar messages from OpenBSD booting up. Proceed to install as usual. So this is a text-based installation, but this works just fine. With IP type set to exclusive, the VM has the same network access to the OmniOS host as if they were both connected to the same switch. In their case, the VM can get an IP using their LAN DHCP server. Easy enough. Don't forget to configure the console. I once used the 9600 value and this seemed to also work properly. Not sure what the best value is, but so far, uh, 115,200 works properly too. So that uh, they show which kind of inputs they do in the install. The Z wall and install disk image appears two disks. Don't install OpenBSD on the wrong one. Yeah, be careful there. The Beehive VM expects a UFI system as mentioned. Don't forget to select the GPT configuration if you want the VM to boot on its own. Yes, good thinking. If you wish to use this installation as a template to deploy all your next OpenBSD instances, jump to the next section below. Uh, if you plan to use this virtual machine as is, select the halt option, quit the console using the zone, uh, stop the zone and deallocate the block device. Okay, start the virtual machine and enjoy. Yeah, it boots to the OpenSD login prompt and they have a full D message available uh, to read uh, linked from the blog post. The template image, you can install all the OpenSD VM instances using the previous steps or you can modify the installer to provide an unattended install or even use this install zone as a base to speed up future deployments. Uh, while you're still in the installer, drop to the shell and change root to the installed system. Uh, they like to add an authorized SSH key for root. One could also configure SMTPD to, uh, to authenticate to the LANs relay and configure some monitoring packages, etc. They have a bigger section about the image creation, uh, how to do that, and, uh, terminal shell script mostly. And uh, once the template is ready, it can be used. Turn the zone off, remove the installer image, and deallocate the block device. Then create a copy of the installed Zvol. Create a template file out of the installed zone. Both will be used to create new OpenBSD instances. They show all the steps uh, that you can just copy and paste and adopt to your own environment. And then you can delete the template VM. Image deployment. Once that ADM to or use that ADM to create a new OpenBSD instance from the Zvol and configure file. Uh, that we're just creating. So ZADM create dash B beehive and then some other options that target the uh, image or the template you were just creating. The new zone can then be started. ZADM start dash C puffy. During the first boot, OpenBSD will ask for a new name, run syspatch and reboot. From there, kindergarten is open. <laughs> okay. Uh, they have a note on the sizing changes. If the new zone has a different CPU number, no problem. OpenBSD detected after a clean boot. Same thing happens if the RAM size was changed from the template value. Check if the swap size matches the changes. If the disk size was changed, your mileage may vary. If you downsize the boot disk, chances are that the zone won't boot properly. If you upsize the boot disk, OpenBSD should detect this. Yeah, getting smaller is always difficult in VM land. In their testings, the kernel detected the new disk size properly, and both disk label and GrowFS helped recovering the new space. Okay, they have a separate part about adding network interfaces to it uh, and adding storage to it, because maybe the base operating system gets full quite quickly. 
and also about migrating to a Z wall and attaching an NFS share at the bottom. That's all. Bye for now, they say. Definitely check out the full article. They have a bunch of output and example code and script uh, yeah, that you can just use and, as said, adopt to your own environment. Cool. Very nice. Thank you. All right. Next up, we have a blog post from Dan Lango uh, from his uh, other diary. He has another more popular diary. This one is more general. Dan writes about um, FreeBSD jailed ZFS datasets. How do I find the .zfs slash snapshot directory? On FreeBSD, you can jail a ZFS dataset. That is, you can, that is, the jail can manipulate the ZFS dataset as if it was a host, more or less. This has useful applications. In my case, I want to back up a snapshot of that dataset from the host. For example, I want to back up the dataset um, Freshports jailed dev ingress zero data latest commits. Within the jail, the path of that dataset is slash var db ingress latest commits. Indeed, within the jail, you can see the snapshots, including the one I want to back up, snapshot for backup. The problem to solve, how to go from um, slash var deb ingress latest commits dot zfs dot snapshot to slash jails dev ingress zero one slash var db ingress latest commits dot zfs slash snapshot when all you have is the dataset name. I know how to get this information about the dataset. Line 13 has the mount point. There's a, a, a ZFS get all list, and then he's highlighted line 13. Um, that's part of what is needed. I think the missing information is the name of the jail, dev ingress 01, and the mount point, root of the jail, relative to the host. I think we can get the mount point from JLS. Jailed into what is the question? How can I find out what jail a given set of data set is jailed with? That's the missing information. I may move to non-jailed data sets for, for stuff which needs backing up this way. Um, yeah, I think Dan would like feedback and, and comments. So if you yeah. want to read this and if you know how to help him, send him an email. I'm sure he would really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for writing about your problems, Dan. Always mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Check out, I have Dan's blog uh, in my RSS reader for years, and I just what, picked the what, great what stuff do you from there. What do you use to read RSS? Uh, it's called, uh, it's on the phone, remember these things. Um, wait, where, where did it go? Uh, even that reader is quite old and luckily doesn't get many updates that require you to spend money, but where did I just, ah, here, wait, uh, Feedly. Feedly. Okay. Yeah. It's I, simple. I, it yeah. yeah. Okay. Doesn't need much fancy bells and whistles. It just shows articles. You can group them into categories. And it doesn't give much of oh, please give money or here's advertisements stuff. So I I, I used to use an RSS reader which was on the command line called Newsbutter, News B E U T E R, um, oh. which was described as Mutt, but as an RSS reader, which is exactly the selling point I wanted because I, I used Mutt for <laughs> all my email. Um, that stopped being developed and was continued development uh, as Newsboat, but I, I just oh, sort of okay. think, I think I had too much RSS to read and I just, just stopped. I, I can read RSS. Yeah, I, I unsubscribe a couple of those if they get boring uh, or too much. I, but sometimes if I have an RSS feed from a blog and that person doesn't blog anymore, then of course there's no new feed. The thing for me added. is that people would write really long blog posts and I'd really want to read them and just never read them. Like if anyone ever sends me an email, mm. which is more than one sentence, I just never read it. Yeah, I also have this like, oh, I read this later. I don't yeah. I have time now. Yeah. It just it piles up and after a while I get, yeah, Marcus read and 
Like, I, I do eat RSS reader would be on my phone because I always have it and would mm. have cached yeah, is... everything. Mm. Lots of stuff doesn't cache oh, everything. Oh, yeah. Because like, uh, what normally happens is I'm on a plane and that's when I realized I need offline content. Or if I prepare, like when I flew to Germany at the end of last year, um, mm. I went through Spotify and made sure stuff was downloaded. But when I got on the plane, Spotify wouldn't play anything. It had like one song in each of the albums I downloaded. Not because I hadn't downloaded oh. them, but because I hadn't updated its keys. And it didn't think I was mm. going to be offline, even though I was downloading stuff. And so I could listen to four songs. Yeah, on everything the plane. requires a constant network connection. And, and, and this is a nightmare because I, though... I, I, I prepared. Um, and like sometimes I'll get bored and I'll like read the tabs in my phone. But if the page refreshes, then it's just gone because it, it can't refresh. Yeah, yeah, I have the same. It's like, oh, I need a little bit more communicating with the server and boom, disconnect. Yeah, the Feedly also, I'm not sure if you have, it's that, that's a paid functionality to download the, uh, or have an offline feed. I mean, like, I, I guess network. it should, it, it should have some form of you giving them money because. Yeah, yeah, that, like, that they, they have, they need by to all eat. means. They need to eat. But yeah, like, I mean, I was <laughs> yeah, using, yeah, um, oh, what's this RSS reader called? It's really old. I think I might have uninstalled it, actually. Um, Net Newswire. But it is like ugly as sin. Um, yeah, and there were but some like again, reasonably nice looking reader, iOS RSS readers, but they're not developed anymore, so I, yeah. it just don't work. <laughs> Since you mentioned Mutt earlier, are you using that at all, or have been using it? I I was using Mutt for all of my email until um, sometime last year. I had a bunch mm -hmm. of machines just not die just annoy me and so i've just been using um the web interface via fastmail so i would use mutt uh. for most email reading and then fall back on a web browser for things that needed a web browser okay yeah but yeah i've been okay. thinking since i started doing a lot more vim stuff and being command line oriented even more than i already was that maybe switching to a text browser and yeah you should you should do it it's great email. i mean I used to have. Um, I hear a lot of good things, and yeah, I used to have a permanent team up session with WeChat for IRC and another pane mm. for Mutt, and so I would just connect to a machine and have both of these, and that's really good. Um, Mutt with sidebar is good if you have a lot, uh, if you have folders for your email, which I imagine you yeah, must have folders for I your do, email, because yeah. how else would you handle the the FreeBSD source commits yeah. mailing lists? Um, <laughs> just yeah, if you have only that, yeah, yeah. it's already enough. <laughs> Um, yeah, like it works. It works really well. I'm really happy with it. I miss it sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. I just don't. Okay. What 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 happened is um, I did a lot of email for work, and I just stopped reading my personal email at all, and I never started. Yeah, again. that also. So don't email That's why me. I have it two work. email clients. I have Apple Mail for. <laughs> this is totally getting off track here, but okay. Uh, Apple Mail for business or work email, and Thunderbird for private and FreeBSD mail, which sometimes is the same. Um, but maybe Mutt is one where I can yeah, watch this when, together. When I was at the university, I didn't get a ton of email, and but I had to follow mailing lists. And so I just, I forwarded all of that into like Mutt. So I just had my personal ah, okay. email and, and work email. From there. And that was okay. But um, I, I, when I left the university, I wanted boundaries between these things. And hmm. people expect nice you to be able to read their HTML. <laughs> Yeah, the nice thing I can close one if I'm at home and close the other one if I'm at work, so I don't have the the mental distraction from the other one. Yeah, 
<clears throat> for for reading threaded emails, it's much better than any web client. Like okay. you can read a really long discussion and it makes sense because it's threaded properly. And mm. I just don't really read mailing lists anymore because they're a nightmare yeah. on a web client. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was our brief stunt into what software we are what using. What is email? Um, <laughs> that too, yeah. We should st we completely should stop using email for a while. That that's the ultimate solution. Um, what you should do better is <laughs> sorry. What you should do better is um <laughs> just set up uh like SOCAT to nifty like uh, to push over and then instead of emails mm. we will send a udp datagram to a port and you can give each person you want to speak to you at their Ooh. own port on your server yeah and then you'll get a notification on your phone me. and that's the only only <laughs> form of message and they'll all it'd just be that, we've, I've, we've just invented pagers don't know that that yeah <laughs> we just reinvented the internet in a, in a bad way just reinvented the pager uh, <laughs> cool um Suleen, yeah, is back with another blog post. Uh, remember the one last week? Uh, this one is more technical. OpenBSD workstation hardening, which is also the namesake of this episode. You might think, oh, well, what's the big deal? It's secure by default, you may say. Uh, but it turns out you can do a bit more to be even more secure if that is actually possible. And she starts that with introduction. I wanted to start a list of hardening you can do on your OpenBSD workstation, explaining the threat model of each change. They, uh, why does she list OpenBSD's official project website next? Okay, just for the people who have never heard about it. Anyway, feel free to pick any uh, tweak you will find useful for your use case. Many are certainly overkill for most people, but depending on the context, these changes could make sense for others. And if some of these features are available on other Unixes or other BSDs out there, you could definitely try to use them there as well. That's my personal take. So, uh, it starts off with user configuration. There are some tweaks that could be done in the configuration of a user to improve the security. The least privileges, for example. In order to prevent a program to escalate privileges, remove yourself from the wheel group and don't set any do as or pseudo permission. If you need root privileges, switch to a TTY using the root user. Okay, multiple factor authentication. In some cases, it may be desirable to have a multi-factor authentication. This means that in order to log into your system, you would need a TOTP generator, phone app typically, or a password manager such as XC, in addition to your regular password. This would protect against people nearby who may be able to guess your system password. I already wrote a guided explanation how to add TOTP on an OpenBSD login. She links to that, of course, uh, to, to the other. Home directory permission. The permissions of the user directory should be 700, so only the owner and root could browse it. Ideally, you should add umask 077 to your user environment. Remember, that's the other way around. So every new directory or file permissions will be restricted to your user only. Good practice there. Next is firewall. There are some interesting policies to configure with the help of OpenBSD's firewall packet filter. First, block inbound. By default, it's good practice to disable all incoming traffic, all of it, except the responses to established sessions so servers can reply to your requests. The pro this protects against someone on your local network or VPN to access network services that would be listening on the network interfaces. In your pf.conf, etc, uh, you, etc, pf.conf more like, you would have to replace the default. Block return, pass by following. Block all, pass out inet, 
and then pass in proto TC, uh, ICMP, that is uh, to make pings and such work. Then reload pfctl-f etcpfconf if you ever need to allow a port on the network, add the according rule in the file. Then filter outbound. It may be useful and effective to block outbound traffic, but this only works effectively if you know exactly what you need because you will have to allow hosts and remote ports manually. It would protect against the program trying to exfiltrate data using a non-allowed port and host. Yep, uh, that's special. Disabling network for the desktop user. Disabling network by default is an important mitigation in my opinion. This will protect against any program you run and try to act rogue. If they can't figure there is a proxy, they won't be able to connect to the internet. This could also save you from mistaken commands that would pull stuff from the network like pip, npm, and so on. I think it's always great to have a tight control on which program should do networking and which shouldn't. On Linux, this is actually easy to do, but on OpenBSD, we can't restrict a single program, so a proxy is the only solution. This can be done by creating a new user named underscore proxy, or whatever the name you prefer, using user at dash s, s bin no login as the shell, and minus m underscore proxy, and adding your SSH key to its authorized keys file. At this rule at the end of your pfconf, and then reload pfctl f, Block return out proto TCP UDP in curly brackets and then user Celine in this case. Uh, now, if you want to allow a program to use the network, you need to toggle the proxy on with the command SSH capital N capital D, then port uh, 10,000 underscore proxy at localhost, which is only possible if your SSH private key is unlocked. So the, it has no pass phrase. Configure a SOX5 proxy in the program, like the browser you're using. Then there's some network fixes she uh, wants us to do. Most programs will react to a proxy configured in a variable named HTTP underscore proxy or HTTPS proxy or all proxy even. However, it's not a good idea to globally define those variables for your user as it would be a lot easier for a program to use the proxy automatically, which is against the essence of this proxy. SSH. By default, if you uh, are not able to SSH anything except on a local user, uh, we need to proxy every remote SSH connection through the local proxy user. And in your uh, .ssh config, the local user's config, the SSH user config, host local host, user underscore proxy, control master auto for the uh, reconnecting being more fast, and then host star dot star proxy jump local host. Ah, okay. If you didn't configure GNOME proxy settings, Chromium or the ungoogled Chromium won't use a proxy, except if you add a command line parameter dash dash proxy dash server equals SOX5 slash slash localhost colon 10,000. Sync thing. If you use sync thing, you need to proxy all its traffic through the SSH tunnel. This is done by setting the environment variable all underscore proxy to your SOX5 proxy in the program environment. Then number five, live in a temporary file system. It's possible to have most of your home directory be a temporary file system living in memory with a few directories with persistency. This change would prevent anyone from using temporary files or cache left over from previous sessions. The most efficient method to achieve this is to use the program home impermanence that I wrote for this use case. It handles a list of files directories that should be persistent. If you only want to start fresh using a template that doesn't evolve on us, you can check the flag capital P on mount MFS, which allows populating the fresh memory-based file system using an existing directory. She has both blog posts linked and the man page there as well. Uh, the next one is kind of obvious. Disable webcam and microphone. Uh, set the current.audio.record or current.video.record to one when you need to use them. Otherwise, set them to zero to not use uh, 
or not be able to use them. Disable USB ports. You can do that in etcbsd.reconfig and add the content to it. Disable USB and disable XHCI. This will disable the support for USB 3 and two controllers on a desktop computer. You may want to use PS2 peripherals in these conditions. Okay. She mentions other system-wide services. For example, uh, Clam AV antivirus, auto-updating, and uh, yeah. Then there's system configuration, memory allocation hardening. That's vm.malloc underscore conf equals uh, is that five or is that an S? I think it's S. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Uh, that is to prevent some or enable some extra checks, use after free, heap overflows, or guard pages. Okay. Some ideas to go further specialized proxies, for example, for different services HTTP, SSH only, IMAP, SMTP, run processes, or a process using dedicated users, and encrypted home with a USB unlocking. Uh, she has a couple of ideas there that she uh, further elaborates, but she concludes with, at the end, it's always possible to harden a system more and more, but the balance between real-world security and actual usability should always be studied. No one will use a too much hardened system if they can't work on it efficiently. On the other hand, users expect the system to protect them against the most common threats. Depending on one's environment and threat model, it's important to configure the system accordingly. Yeah, good. Okay, next up, we have an update from the OpenBSD journal at undeadly.org. And this post is by Peter and M. Hanstein on the 26th of December, 2023 from the Plasma on Tap department. KDE Plasma now linked to packages built on current. KDE Plasma is now fully functional on OpenBSD and available via the package system. To install a simple package add, KDE Plasma is sufficient. Uh, congratulations to Raphael Sadowski uh, on completion of this mammoth effort. Yeah, well done. That's that's wonderful. Good job. Yeah, it's definitely something because KDE is a huge beast still, but even better now that it works on OpenBSD. Uh, then we have a new release for you. BSDSec lets us know that MidnightBSD 3.1.3 has been released. And it includes the following. Updated OpenSSH to 9.2, patch level 1. Added the quirk for uh, Western Digital pa My Passport, Ultra External HDD. They fixed the read and write past buffer and in Perl Security Issue 140. NVI has version 2.2.1 now. Update PCI vendors to 2023, that's uh, September. Yep, that, that version. OpenZFS ensure the ZFS get ATTR initializes the VARD, uh, RDEF field, and NFC, uh, NFCL fixed processing of a rare rename reply case. And you can get MidnightBSD at midnightbsd.org slash download. BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated. It then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. This key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap has bug bounties so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. 
With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. We're a podcast and we get emails. Um, it's not it's not unexpected. Um, we don't read them in much, it seems. Uh, we get emails because we ask for emails and we're always very happy to have your feedback. If you would like to mm-hmm. provide a question or a comment to the show, you can send an email to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And if it's good enough, we'll include it in the show. Whichever means, whatever definition of good you mean. Yeah, whoever's um, whoever's value scale <laughs> if it gets past jt our producers uh keen eyes on what quality means then it's ending up in an episode that we are covering okay and this, um, one, this week yeah you read this one i'll, I'll reply to okay that. i'll read <laughs> uh, we received a question from kieran or a feedback more like which is also um valid on this email address and kieran writes hi bsd now team i hope you're all doing well are having a great start to 2024. Thank you. Uh, we hope you have too. And uh, it continues. I'm currently about 10 minutes into episode 539, and I'm afraid to say that I'm feeling quite disappointed by Tom's dismissive comments about or towards the non-FreeBSD BSD, such as you should use Dragonfly BSD if it's 2004. I've never used it NetBSD and or package source, and you should use OpenBSD if you have an old PowerBook G4. Did you really say that? Oh wow. <laughs> uh, thankfully, Jordan was around yeah just don't put words in uh, people's mouth thankfully jordan was around to give more context and opposing views and understand that some developers are not optimistic about the dragonfly project but i can't shake the feeling that the community's flagship bsd podcast which is an invaluable source of news updates and insights so yeah thanks should not be so dismissive of three-thirds of the bsd ecosystem as jordan mentioned hammer 2 was the potential or has the potential to be hugely significant part of the scene by being an advanced and modern file system without any of the licensing drama that has hampered zfs adoption across the unix space benedict did well to temper some of these opposing views and it's appreciated okay uh, not that i'm a fanboy of any particular project i hosted my production website on openst with httpde thanks to no small parts of michael w Lucas' brilliant books for over a year before moving into freebsd due to a lure url writing issue i wasn't able to resolve i just didn't like the vibe that people so prominent in the bsd space uh, would so quickly or publicly dismiss projects other than freebsd and the work they do or the niche they fill thanks for everything that you do and please keep up the good work Thank you, Kieran. This is the most controversial feedback I'm aware we've had. Um, Jason's name is Jason, not Jordan. Just, just, just so you know. Right. Yeah. Um, Those in Kieran's feedback. I think Benedict knows Jason's name. <laughs> oh, did I misread that? Okay. No, sorry. you read Jordan. But, I mean, it's in there. Um, and it was yeah, Jason mentioned. Okay. Ah, uh, you know the, these these comments were very tongue in cheek, and I th- I think if you miss that, it's, it's it's definitely on you. Um, maybe it helps when we have video now that we can really see tongue in cheek. You see, you see how much right. I'm just staring into space, confused about the number of books around. How we, you know, make eye contact. And... A, a lot of this podcast is, I mean, encroaching on toxic positivity about the state of the BSDs, and the fact is that in an offhand remark, we can be a bit more flippant about how they are. Um, none of this is without evidence. I, I have used NetBSD. It was horrific. Um, the hardware I tried to run it on, it didn't work at all. Um, and I think you'll frequently see from the posts that we cover in this show about NetBSD and installations, it's hard going. It's a difficult thing to install. 
it has upsides. Um, build.sh is an amazing tool for doing cross-platform development and incredibly impressive. Um, but you need to live in reality about what is in NetBSD and what is, isn't there. Dragonfly BSD is a very interesting project and there's been development in the past, but I interviewed a former Dragonfly BSD developer for a role last year um, and they said, don't use it, it's dead. Um, and if you look at the development log, so if you just go to facts, like you ignore opinions here, if you look at the development log of Dragonfly BSD, the development is very, very slow. Um, NetBSD has much faster development, but a lot of the development is only a couple of people. Um, I'm never going to say BSD is dying. It's probably one of the first things I remember reading on the internet, and I find it very funny that it's a thing we can still talk about today. In the end, these are operating systems, and they're un unique. But you know, there's there's different levels of use here. You should use OpenBSD if you have a PowerBook G4. I think it's got better support than NetBSD does. This, this is a genuine straight up response. Uh, that's what you should use. You shouldn't use FreeBSD. The FreeBSD support's not as good. It's a lot better than when I first tried it, but it's not as good. Um, there's lots of use cases for all of these platforms and you can choose to use them, but there's a very small set of people working on these and you depend a lot on their goodwill to do anything. And that means that platforms which are stationary or, or dead um, or end of life platforms where there's not new hardware being developed. And so software could be considered done, um, will, will have better support in some places than others. FreeBSD and OpenBSD and, and and I think definitely to a large extent NetBSD, but there's a weird bias there to older hardware, are actively pursuing new hardware. And so they inherently have to rule out older hardware as they go because it is a burden to support these things. This is why FreeBSD is um, D-tiering. I don't I think that's a word. Let's use the word D-tiering. Um, I386. Um, that's why I got rid of MIPS. That's why I got rid of Spark64 because there's a massive burden in the face of new developments to keep these platforms around. They have an overhead. So I've got rid of um, ARM5. And I think we've got rid of ARM6 now. Um, they make it harder to maintain other stuff. Nobody cares about it. There's no hardware. You might care about it. What I mean is nobody willing to do any work will care about it. And that's the reality for a lot of this. So yeah, you, I'm sure you can use Dragonfly BSD. I'm sure there's enough of a platform there and you can do stuff. You can equally use macOS Panther, and there's enough of a platform there, and you can do stuff. The realities of this are a thing you need to be honest with sometimes, and these are small platforms. If you want to see one of these platforms persist or these operating persist because they have something unique, either steal what is unique and put it into a platform that's supported by a lot more people, so the burden isn't on a small set of people. And this is effectively how, how Plan 9 survived. There's a big resurgence with Ninefront, and so there are people using this. But read the stuff written by people that use Ninefront, and it. I'm not saying that that Plan Nine is a joke. I'm saying that they're very honest about the support of this hardware and the support of this operating system. They will put an effort to support hardware, and there will be other changes. But it's you know one person doing something at a time, and in in reality, a lot of the the platforms are probably virtual machines, and not in the way that there are inherently more virtual computers than there are real computers and there will be for the future just because you can run a lot more virtual computers on one real computer than you can like you can't run a real computer on a virtual machine so there's inherently an explosion of size there but yeah like like living reality it's fun to make jokes about these things and it's good that you wrote in um if this was youtube this would have been great engagement and we could have had a wonderful flame war in the comments and we could have increased our cpm but 
instead it was just a small podcast um it i, I wasn't sure about responding to this but I, I think it's good to frame this these are jokes yeah you should use these operating systems if you want to i use freebsd because it's a great platform and i have some truly wonderful friends i've met from working on it and it mm. uh, keeps me eating food um and you should use other platforms if you want to but yeah if you have a yeah. G, however g4 use openbsd is, is the right answer that's the ecosystem right the 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 variety and the different approaches to certain things that makes the bsd systems interesting not just having one uh monoculture of sorts that's kind of bad we're not the freebsd now podcast we're the bsd podcast BSD i mean we have now. been called freebsd now a lot flippantly by people in the open bsd community mm. freebsd gets a lot of shit from a lot of people a lot of the time and there is a lot of um hiding from reality for how platforms are that also yeah like a terms. lot of people are happy to buy into the hype for other platforms but not for freebsd um it's fine whatever just mm. like it's a bigger platform it's, it's bound to happen um but yeah, but like, it's very it, interesting, and not everything is happening in uh, in the public space. So, a lot of discussions happen behind closed doors because uh, they have to be defined first, and then they can put out. And that may seem like everything is dead or not working properly, but there are still people behind that may not be that public uh, as they as other people want it to be. Um, but. That is also sometimes necessary in an open source project to be closed in certain ways. Okay, I think um, if people are interested in these kinds of topics, they can write in and uh, if, refer to this question. I be, mean, you could definitely keep to. a flame war going. Yeah, <laughs> by all means. Uh, but no. the better thing would be to go to a BSD conference and speak to people in person. Like the the real answer is if you. Yeah, it's definitely that's why conferences are so important. Yeah, if there's a platform you wish had better support, go and do the work. If you don't know how to do the work, learn. Yeah, that's the easiest. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the answer. With. Sorry, like learn or pay someone. Yeah. Like open your checkbook. Um, find a checkbook from somewhere, blow the dust off it, and then write yeah. a check, <laughs> and then have the bank reject it because nobody knows what a check is. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just being mean <laughs> towards America now. Um, yeah, like do the work. But if you want to have arguments about the future of platforms, come to a BSD conferences where they all happen. We're all quite amiable. Yeah. Sometimes we all get a little bit drunk. Not Benedict. We're even but nicer others. in person, right? Yeah, they're more fun in person. <laughs> they're much better arguments in person as well. That too, yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks again for your feedback. That was uh, not too critical, in my opinion, but definitely. <laughs> okay. Uh, and we have another piece of feedback this week from Albin. Um, Albin writes, Thank you for a great show. I remember that you asked for links, inquiries, questions in an earlier episode. So here I come. Links. I think Andy creator of the oil shell for unix has some interesting thoughts regarding unix system architecture one good starting point for his thoughts is the project's wiki that contains links to relevant blog posts and there'll be a link in the show notes to this response um i think it would be interesting if you cover the different capability systems that have been built into FreeBSD or capscom or hardware cherry it would be great if you got david chisnell for a longer interview did we interview david at some point uh no i don't think so not even in person oh, okay uh, because we didn't get to Cambridge when he was still there, but now that he's uh, 
Microsoft and moved on to other places, I think, after. Uh, he's been popping into the mailing lists uh, occasionally. He did, he did an interview this week on Lobsters. Um, oh, did he? Yeah. Cool. I haven't seen that yet. I mean, if you want to know more about um, Cherry and Capscom, you can listen to the interview we did with Brooks. Uh, yeah. Um, and with our new platform here, it should be more easy to uh, create those and hook people into this uh, thing without having them to record locally and all these extra things we had okay, to do and then for a while. Albin's last, last question, uh, only questions. Um, Here's some questions that I have, uh, but had problems finding fresh answers to. These question, this question is asked from the perspective of a Linux user that is preparing for installing FreeBSD for desktop use. What is the recommended way for doing full disk encryption on FreeBSD? ZFS native encryption, something else. Is it possible to boot from an FDE disk? Any other info you think is relevant if you're going to do full disk encryption uh, on your desktop computer? Um, the middle one, yes, of course. Yes, yes, you can do full disk encryption on FreeBSD. Um, mm-hmm. The recommended way, I'm not sure. Um, there's two ways I'm aware of. There have been many, many, yeah. many more, but there are two ways. Um, the main way to do um, disk encryption of FreeBSD is through a geom layer called Jelly. So geom layers are stackable. Um, and so you can basically load a kernel module and it gives you a virtual uh, view of a disk or a partition, and then you run a file system on top of that. And so I think the FreeBSD installer still does this where um, it will create a a jelly partition for ZFS and then we'll give you um, ZFS encryption. Um, Now you can do native ZFS encryption, but I've not hit this at all. But with jelly, you can run any Uh, file system you want on top of the jelly. Um, Mm -hmm. The caveat here that you have to be aware of is that it only works on new file systems that you uh, do ZFS create. There you have to set that you want encryption on. Uh, You cannot retroactively encrypt a file system but because it's no a, a layer beneath the file system. And so when you yeah. when you load the file system with Jelly, it does the decryption and the file system layer never sees the encrypted stuff. It just gets stuff in plain text because the keying is all handled. And so mm-hmm. if you imagine you've written the file system to disk, you can't write another file system layer on top of that. So you can't reinitialize a disk like that. I think you can with ZFS native encryption, but it, it feels very new to use as your as the full disk encryption for your computer yeah the nice thing in the on a data set level on zfs full diffs or native encryption is that you can say this data set has this encryption and this other data set has another key or a whole different thing and they don't have to know about each other so picture uh at a pool where different departments store data on one is research the other one is hr or whatever and they don't have to know each other's keys and can still live on the same uh pool and separate data sets that's or nice. even in the case for the things uh the hardening article we covered from celine um you could have a per user date like each user in the system have a data set and then just decrypt that and then you wouldn't have any overlap there um i don't know if there's anything relevant it used to be that um when you did jelly volumes you had a passphrase and a key file by default and if you lost the key file you lost the disk and the key file was stored on a clear text bootloader partition um that isn't the case anymore but that is the only hiccup i've ever had with FreeBSD and full disk encryption is i lost that clear text file and had to recover from backup but otherwise everything's been fine and i've been doing this for nearly 10 years that's kind of sad yeah see 
Uh, the ZFS, you have uh, regular passphrases, so text input when you want to access the file or the data set mounted for the first time. And uh, you can also say, here's a device that stores the passphrase that has a like, kind of a string that is the, the unencryption key, unpassphrase. Un, un decryption key. Uh, decryption key, thank you. Uh, or you can say, like, um, here's a rocket key. If you turn this, the rocket will... Uh, engage right so you need two keys that need to be accessed like usb keys that need to be inserted uh to unlock this thing so that makes it a bit more complicated but also more secure um if you lose one of them then you cannot access the whole thing anymore so that's also possible um no it's not possible to boot from a full disk uh, encrypted zfs pool yet they are working on it but at the moment the loader has no way of figuring out the uh, is this gibberish that I'm reading or is this actual boot code that I can parse? Uh, so don't encrypt your whole uh, root file system on ZFS yet. Only single partitions that are not boot relevant or to run the system. Uh, other than that, for desktop user or desktop use case, that's perfectly valid if you want to have like your home directory encrypted or parts in it. Create a data set, mount that in your home directory and encrypt uh, or yeah, encrypt when you create the data set, of course, then copy files into it. And once you're un, uh, you unload this data set or the, the key for it, then it's encrypted. No one can read it. They, they can see the files in there, but they can just contain gibberish or even the file names are not discernible. So people have no way of knowing what's in there. Yeah, try it out on a test machine, maybe not on production yet. But it's fairly straightforward, and you will find plenty of documentation out there how to use it. We should probably update that FreeBSD wiki or the handbook as well to give a couple of use cases. Excellent. Thank you for the question, Alvin. Okay. That is the feedback section. You can also uh, contact us again via feedback at bsdnow.tv, or we have a Telegram channel with a couple people joining us. Uh, did a couple of people leave us also? I haven't seen anyone yet. Uh, so that's t.me slash bsdnow. Sometimes there's a bit of discussion going on, but it's still fairly quiet. It's not like, uh, oh my God, 50 new messages in the morning uh, with a couple of zeros after it, like 50,000. No, it's very quiet sometimes. There's a couple of discussions, but typically on topic and good ones and everyone's benefiting from them. And it's a nice meeting and greeting, uh, saying hi and... Uh, maybe discussing some topics from the show. So yeah, you can join us there. You can also check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bsdnow, if you want to support this show in one way or the other. And other than that, you can, of course, uh, wait in your podcatcher of choice for a new episode that will come out next week. And as always, we'll be happy to cover more BSD stories when you send them to us that we have not on our radar yet, a blog post, a tutorial, anything that you find interesting that we should cover in the future. Uh, anything else that we uh, should mention, Tom? I don't have anything yet. Again, the year is still young. We have not uh, made many plans to, at least <laughs> I have not. And uh, conferences are starting uh, to pop up with call for papers. We should cover that maybe next time. And until then, enjoy whatever you're doing. <laughs>